Hello, everybody. My name is Mark Rayshap. Thank you so much for listening. This is Another Bottle Down, which is a radio show and podcast about the wine industry and, and the personalities behind wine. We cover all countries and regions and talk to anybody who has a really interesting voice in the wine world. Um, broadcasting uh, in Austin, Texas on Tuesdays on 91.7 Co-op Radio. And then, of course, you can get this podcast anytime and you can access uh, any episode that I've ever done on uh, iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, again, I really appreciate all of the the comments and the support and and anybody who rates the podcast, uh, particularly if you if you give it a good good rating. <laughs> um, really appreciate it, everybody. Uh, October is Texas Wine Month, and we are going to be talking with several winemakers. I made a little trip out to the Hill Country and uh, and had really interesting conversation conversations with these folks. And so for the next uh, three or four or five episodes here on the podcast. We're going to be hearing from these Texas winemakers who are on the forefront of what they are doing. Uh, first up, this week will be uh, Ben Calais, and uh, and we'll also hear also this week from Doug Lewis, and uh, and later on Joshua Fritchie from uh, William Chris and Tatum. Uh, quick plug before we get going, uh, I want to if if you're listening to this before Wednesday in Austin, Texas, and you're a lover of Texas wines, or if you're a skeptic of Texas wines, I'm going to be giving a class at the Wine and Food Foundation on pretty much my top eight Texas wines that I've tasted, really interesting diversity of the wines from uh, the Viognier that's, uh, Pedernales Viognier that um, is, you know, doing really wonderful things to Roussan. A lot of people are really thinking that Roussan is one of the best white grapes for Texas. Of course, we throw in a rosé, Sangiovese, Tempranillo. Uh, we're going to be pouring the new vintage of CL Buteau, uh, which is really, I'm really looking forward to that. Doug Lewis's Cab Tempranillo blend. I, I mean, we, we've got a, a Sag Grantino from uh, Messina Hoff, which is recently just really blew my mind. And uh, so, so tons of really great stuff. Um, winefoodfoundation.org, if you want to check out tickets to that. Uh, really hope to see you there. Okay, let's get into the interview with Ben Calais from Calais Winery. <laughs> Well, Ben Calais, this has been a long time coming. Thank you for taking the time. Uh, I'm out in the hill country here at your winery in High, Texas, right? Um, you're doing great things here in this underground cave. Thanks for being on the show. My pleasure. Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit, for folks who don't know your operation, what, what is it that you're doing overall? And then we'll kind of get into this vintage and, and, and all the things you're doing. So we're, uh, we're a really small winery. We make about 2,500 cases of wine a year. Uh, we did about 2,600 in 2017 vintage. Uh, we focus primarily on Bordeaux Verados. We make a lot of Cabernet Sauvignon, uh, Merlot, Petit Verdot. Uh, we did our first Anad this year, so those are our main Verados. Um, we work by gravity, so we have our underground building, and then we crush outside, we press outside, and just use our, our drive as a gravity flow, so none of our wines are ever pumped any point in the process and that the the concept there for folks who don't know the ins and outs of the winery it, it, what is the concept yeah it's more gentle so the more gentle you are with the wine the, the less shear you apply to the wine and and the better the wine's going to turn out to be 
yeah. it was just kind of a last step. It's how wine was made for the past 2000 years. And it's kind of, there's, there's a lot of revival of that technique in Oregon or, or in Burgundy where they use Pinot Noir or, or varietals are softer that cannot take the pressure of pumps where here, although we make both of varietals that well, we could probably take the sheer force. Um, it just makes better wine if we absolutely don't touch yeah. the wine in any form or fashion. And your winery, I think most people are kind of shocked that it's 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 a small cellar and and you do everything here, um, from the from the crushing outside to 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 the wine storage and blending and all that. Yeah, it's amazing. We, we run fermentations in a cave. Um, we we maintain about sixty five degrees year round in the building, and um, um, we have one hundred thirty two barrels at the moment in this building. And a few scattered at my friends' wineries too. <laughs> the ones that couldn't fit here. <laughs> exactly. We ran out of space this year. Yeah. Well, tell us a little bit about your background. You're 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 from France originally. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Calais is my last name, and it's my hometown in northern France, in the BLNs of France. Uh, we're right by Belgium, so our claim of fame is nine percent alcohol beer or ten percent alcohol beer. Right. And um, so um, I'm from a farming family, but there's no there's no wine in my family. Northern France is beer beer and just beer anything north of champagne you really don't want to grow grapes there's a few people that do it it's just not the best quality wine um so i have a lot of my close friends are in bordeaux but my personal background is computer engineering that's how i ended up in the us i used to design computer security software for a living and um, my shoulders wanted me here to uh, open a research center for my company and uh, so i moved out here to do that and when i arrived in texas I'd, I'd been traveling to Texas quite a bit. I had a chance to taste most of the wines that was made in Texas at the time, which like 12 years ago was not, not that much. Right. And so um, I, got, I got to try everything and I thought I could make a dent in it. So I opened it as side business 10 years ago. Wow. And it's been growing just slowly, organically ever since. Yeah. And then uh, did you, then you kind of made the jump full time somewhat recently? Yeah. Two years, two years in. Wow. Yeah. Initially I did consulting. Like when the company started, company that brought me here started going down, I just started doing consulting so I could split my time better. Yeah. And then after a while I just went full time on the winery and and uh, um, it's been it's been a good role and ever it, since. Right, it's been gro- and the the growth has been wonderful here. And then you've branched out into other businesses as well, which we'll talk about. We'll talk about your rum project uh, down the line. Um, well, so you know, growing up in France and in a beer region, but w- were you kind of attracted to wine? Uh, in, I mean, in wine general? is everywhere. Yeah, right. I mean, it's it's part of our culture. Uh, we'll get to start drinking wine when we were young. It's not it, it's not the same approach as it is here in the U.S. Yeah. So um, just birthday, Christmas, New Year, you drink wine with the family, with grandparents. I happened to be born in 1982, which is one of the big Bordeaux years. Yeah. And so I learned to drink wine by drinking, yeah, like Saint Emilion Grand Cru from 1982. So it was a good, it was a good first step. That and is, yeah. I was I was hooked. I spent most of my summers. I had some very good friends down in Bordeaux and. So, um, it's, it's, it's hog at the bug. Yeah. Right. So, and then you, most of the, so you, you talk about Bordeaux varieties and Tanat is new. Um, where do you talk about your philosophy as working with the vineyards? Do you, do you own the vineyards? Do you enjoy working with certain growers? How does that work for you? So all, all we do is contract growing. Um, we, we 
have we have full sale management on every single one of the vineyards that that we work with so we uh, we have very, very low yield target i mean we're we're trying to make old class wine from 100 percent texas grapes we only use texas grapes right we don't use anything from california washington state so we uh all our all our vineyards are at high elevations so our lowest elevation is in uh, brownfield texas mm-hmm. southwest of lubbock and then after that we have stuff all the way up to six thousand feet in fort davis just outside of fort davis and so um, um we we usually run to two and a half tons to the acre so those are yield that you would find in napa valley that are kind of unusual at this point in texas although more and more um vineyard owners and winery owners are uh, looking into bring lower yield for higher quality right and so do you feel like you have to really push the growers to be doing lower yields or are you working with like-minded growers how does that well, work? we don't work with that many growers okay so we right. work with the ones that really want to do that um so i'd say that five years ago we had a really hard time getting people on board with doing that and now that a lot of our growers also in the wine business they're seeing that we're not just bugging them for the <laughs> sake of lowering yield but they discover that when they're running lower yield it's making better wine and, yeah. and it's great that a lot of our grape growers either have custom crush facilities or all their own wineries now and uh, they understand very well the impact that lower yield has on on the final wine product and we're trying to push the boundaries so we're probably more extreme than most wineries would be yeah so we brought in a lot of stuff at one and a half 1.8 tons of the acre this year wow uh, including some high yielding varietals like Tanat that came in a Rito yield and they're beautiful. I just, I just ran numbers on it. It's just, we have so many wines that are pitch black this year. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's nice to see the result of all those years. Right. And, and so for folks, you know, who might not be familiar with that, that concept, the lower yield, you might get more concentration in color and flavor, right? That's the goal. The smaller you make the berry. So the goal is not really low yield for the sake of low yield. It's just low yield is what's going to bring you a, bigger wine and more concentrated wine so the thought is that most of the flavor is in the skin and the seed and the pulp itself as for for the most part um sugar and we want the sugar because we're going to transform into alcohol but at the end of the day the sugar doesn't have flavor the flavor comes mostly from the skin so when you shrink the size of the berry you're going to have a higher ratio of skin compared to how much juice is left in there yeah and so when you change that ratio um in the vineyard you're going to end up with just better more concentrated flavor because all those all those flavor compounds are just such a tiny amount of of what you're going to get i mean wine is mostly water and sugar i mean grapes are mostly water and sugar and so um, uh, you're fighting for maybe 0.1 percent so a tiny change in that 0.1 percent is a huge increase in the final flavor of the wine yeah absolutely how do you then another major component also is the acidity and and how do you think about that how do you kind of talk about that with your growers some folks might be out there who know a little bit of wine that but but maybe not enough to get them in trouble and uh and they say that you know texas it's so hot you know we don't have wines that are have balanced acidity as a crit you know as a as a um what do you say to, to folks who say that I mean, it, every hot wine region, everywhere in the world is going to acidify. That's just something that's, that's, that's part of how you work. Um, Napa Valley acidifies all their wines or right. almost all their wines. So it's not, it's not something that's that unusual. Um, depending on what the season's like, we're going to have to acidify or not acidify. Um, I'm, so the whole goal with acidification is to bring the pH in check. I mean, part of it is to just bring the, the, the balance in terms of taste, but 
there's a huge uh, there's a huge impact on the microbial stability of right. the wine to yeah. what the pH is. So for the most part, um, you're gonna acidify for that purpose. We try to acidify as little as possible. Um, a lot of my friends tell me that I run crazy high pHs, which is something that I've seen a lot of wineries do with good results. So we started experimenting about six years ago, and then we started backing off on acidifications, and we just we run really high pHs back, all the way back into the bottle, which means that we're taking a high risk of our barrels going bad on us. So we mm. have to have really great sanitation and then keep everything really, really clean. The barrel stopped up every 30 days, but it gives us wines that are maybe like a little bit more approachable when they're young. Right. And so it makes the wine really shine when it's young. So, yeah. Um, it's a more modern style. It's a very unfriend of me to, <laughs> yeah. to run that high pH wine. We're, we're honestly not making the really like old school rustic. Right. What do your French friends say? Do you, I mean, you bring them A lot of my bottles. French friends are making modern wines nowadays. That's true. So, yeah. um, I mean, if you go to Bordeaux nowadays, it's mostly 15, modern wines. 16 uh, percent alcohol. So, well. yeah. um, they're dig- <laughs> they're obviously, there's a lot of people. It's not just market demand, but a lot of people actually learn to appreciate those, those wines that are maybe like a little darker, maybe more concentrated in terms of fruit. And, right. uh, and it's a beautiful thing because those wines are a little bit more approachable. It doesn't mean they're not going to age well, but that means those wines are going to be a little bit more approachable. Right. And uh, that's 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 something that we're trying to balance. We make some wines that are designed for 10 years aging. You yeah. know, we're trying to have a few wines on each vintage that are ready to drink. Well, if we go back to the vineyards, you mentioned you don't work with many, but... Um, uh, and your, your Brownsfield lowest elevation, Davis mountains, how many in general? And I, th- I hear a lot of buzz now about the Davis mountains and you're one of the big proponents of that area, right? Yeah. There's, there's a lot of potential out there. There's not that many growers. Um, there's projects that are coming off the ground. I have a couple of my friends are working that I'm trying to help get, get to the point where we're going to have more vineyard acreage out there. Um, I think it's a very high potential area. Um, it's and there's a lot of land. I mean, there's there, there's potential for, for plantings, soil. Um, there's tons of land. It's one of the few areas with volcanic soils in Texas. So your grapes are not going to taste anything alike any, anywhere else. Um, the thing about, about growing at such elevation in Texas is that you're going to be fighting a lot of different things, uh, specifically spring frosts and hailstorms. And so that's, that's something that we've had a, a big issue in the past. So this year we lost uh, all our caps off to a late hailstorm about wow. two weeks ago. Wow. And then um, two, two vintages back, the exact same thing happened the night before we we're going to pick the grapes. So there's, there's something to be figured out out there. It's something that exists in other wine regions like Argentina. Right. And I'm thinking Mendoza, hail yeah, and Mendoza is yeah, a problem. They, they, They've developed helmet systems, and so it's all stuff that hasn't really been done. And because there's not been the critical mass of grape growing in the Davis Mountains, we haven't seen all the all the discoveries being done on how to manage spring frost and what type of spring protection. On the high plains, we have those answers, and you see two major types of spring spring frost protections, and right. they're pretty pretty widespread um, in terms of like like how many growers are using it. Right. And um, in Fort Davis, there's just no such answer. So there's a little bit more a little bit more research that needs to be done in terms of exactly how we can mitigate all the risks so that it could be viable financially for people to be growing grapes out there. Right, absolutely. And and it takes it takes, you know, losing fruit for a couple of years to mm-hmm. to really have that motivation. You know, as you say, like the spring frosts, I remember everybody's freaking out. And then it's like how do we 
not have this happen again. Yeah, everybody everybody invested in the high planes in the yeah. past three years. Nobody's been able to use any of the frost protection, which is a great thing. <laughs> right, right. You know, 2015, 2016, 2017 with no no spring frost has been a really regret run. But we have to be conscious that at some point the, the run's going to end. And I'm, I'm very happy that, that most of our vineyards are now frost protected because yeah. when the next big big spring frost is going to show up, we'll be, we'll be able to at least fight back. It doesn't always work. It depends on the types of frost, but for the most part, mitigating those risks means that we're making wine every single year. Yeah, right. So that so we we mentioned Davis Mountains and then the High Plains. It's a very large area. Do you break up the High Plains in any sort of way to think about where your vineyards are and different soils, etc.? So we have we have stuff in Terry County and we have um, uh, in Plains, Texas, in Yoakum County. Uh, Yoakum County is a little bit of higher elevation because 30 miles more west, the more west you go on the high plains and the higher the elevation gets. And everybody believes that everything's flat out there and it's all the same elevation because it looks so flat. But the more west you go and you gain like three, 400 feet elevation, the more you go toward the border of Texas and New Mexico. And um, um, th- there's a lot of differences in terms of grape growing. Uh, the more west you go and the, the, the more you're gonna start finding like shallower soils. So we have a lot of stuff on some Vineyard on really shallow soils. Um, the added elevation also means cooler. What, is the, what does the shallow soils mean to the, to the wine and to the vine? It's going to make for smaller vines. So it's naturally like you don't have to fight quite as hard to get low yields. It's just going to be a little bit more natural for the vine to give you low yields. Yeah. Like a lot of people talk about old vines ends and, you know, all those old vines as Infandale were planted in areas where you couldn't really have cattle or you couldn't have pasture. You couldn't grow all the crops. So they took the worst soils to put the vineyards and or now, burgundy on the slopes of yeah. uh, burgundy was the poor so, soils. So nowadays those are, those are the sites that we're really searching for because we understand that, that, that small amount of stress we had the whole season on the vine is a, is a really great thing. Yeah. Yeah. So then, um, so Bordeaux varieties were, and, and high plains were coming in after the hill country here. I mean, you're, even though you're in the hill country, all of your vineyards that you source from are in the high plains, right? So you were Correct. kind of, you're, 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 you just pressed off yesterday or today. Yeah, we, pressed, Congratulations. we pressed the rest of caps off. So we're pressed out for the year. <laughs> and you're one of the last, right? Usually. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how I fared this year. It was a very early season for me. Um, it's very unusual for us to be done by now. Right. Um, it was, and then how, I mean, do your fermentations take a little bit longer than some producers? How do you think about that? Yeah, we tend to run long fermentation, long slow fermentations, uh, for different reasons. I mean, a, we try, we try to keep them, um, on the slower side just so that we have a little bit more time to extract. We usually have really beautiful fruits, so we want we have re-ripe tannins from the seeds, so we want to extract as much of that as we can. So yeah. we we delay we delay uh, pressing quite a bit, so we tend to do like extend maceration on a lot of a lot of specifically Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, so um, and that's sometimes dangerous, right? I mean, you have yeah, to be I mean, sanitary you can, as well. Yeah, you, you can get bacteria, you can get oxidation. Um, you're losing color, so if you didn't start with a whole lot of color. The longer your fermentation runs, the less color you're going to have. That's counterintuitive is, for some people. You know, I know. You think that, like, because it goes longer, you think, oh, more color, but, but I've had so many years argue that with me, and I'm like, I, you, should <laughs> you, <know. trust> me. <laughs> you should trust me. And I, I've actually ran those experiments my first few years, and you, you can see a noticeable decrease totally, and, yeah. and the U changes. And so yeah. um, it's, it's uh, but you extract but more. Maybe, so if you have really, really nice tannins, so if you have tannins that are not quite ripe, 
that's that's the beauty of the high plains that that for the most part we're gonna get those the seeds really nice and ripe by the time we pick yeah and we will wait on that like we'll on purpose not pick until we start to see the seed turn really nice and deep brown and so usually we end up with high alcohol levels which is also going to slow down our fermentations um, this year our lowest alcohol level is actually 14.7 and we have stuff that's probably going to finish around 17. but you're not afraid of that i mean you're not you're no, not, it makes, you're not afraid it makes for it. beautiful wines makes yeah. for really big wines um and it's a reflection of the year so um on a year like 2012 we have a lot of wines that are in the in the 13s and 14th because that's that's what the year is giving us and in texas you're gonna get just totally random type climates from year to year yeah and so we're just tagging along we're not overcorrecting. we're not watering back we're not trying to acidify we're trying to just kind of do the best at representing what the vineyard and what the terroir gave us on a certain year yeah what uh you you kind of mentioned the bordeaux varieties you do some interesting things on the whites as well talk talk about the the whites that you make uh, we don't make a lot of white but um, we do we do a few uh, a few uh, um, projects. Uh, for the most part, we do Roussan on the white, and we barrel ferment it, and then we barrel age it on the lees. Uh, sometimes for long periods of time. So like our regular Roussan is aged 18 months, which is kind of unusual. Oh, yeah. uh, most whites are aged for like six to nine months, and then put in the bottle so you can get your barrels back by next year. Right. But uh, we tend to uh, to do 18 months on our regular Roussan. It's all done by taste, so sometimes it's going to be a little longer, sometimes going to be a little shorter. It's 18 is the average. Then we do a Roussan Reserve, which we don't put on our tasting menu, but um, we make two or three barrels of that every few years. On, on the years I'm making the bigger, bigger style Roussan. Right. And then that one we aged two and a half to three years. So wow. The last vintage is 2014, which we just bottled a few months ago. And that's, uh, that, that was three years. In and how taste wise, how does that differentiate from other white wines that folks might be familiar with? Well, it has very high texture and Roussan, like the reason we do it with Roussan and no other varietal is that, that Roussan, Roussan might not be the highest aromatic of a white wine varietal, but it has a very, very big texture. Yeah. It's naturally naturally high in glycerol, so it gives you that recoating mouthfeel. Yeah. It stays on the palate for a very long time, so it's a very good candidate for a crazy project like that. Yeah. And so um, we can totally emphasize that by aging the wine on lees and doing batonnage, and so it's, it's the perfect candidate we also put new French oak barrels on that Roussan Reserve, so you also get the the, the new French oak character out of it. But we don't we we never use 100% new French oak on even on the Reserve Roussan. So it's usually like a third to two thirds, so that we get that note. But since the wine stays in barrel for three years, um, <laughs> yeah. you would you totally overpower the wine if if all of the wine was in new French oak for three years. Absolutely, it, it would just be vanilla and. Now you've done that for a while. You've worked with Roussan for a while. I, I see a lot of producers now are really interested in Roussan. Do you think that it's kind of just a fad, or do you think it's something that really Texas might do very well in the long run? I think it's going to be one of the well-known varietals for Texas. I mean, Texas is never going to be a Cab Cabernet Chardonnay type situation where everybody's making the same two or three. Right. Um, I believe Texas is going to be highly diverse because it, there's there's just so many different climates to Texas. Now, on the High Plains, Roussan has a ripening pattern. It's probably the best of any white wine varietal. It's late bud break, late harvest. Even more so than Viognier is an example that a lot of people were talking about Viognier is. Well, Viognier is feast of famine type. Um, it's early bud break. It's 
there's a lot of things that the grape gourd is going to love. It's not that hard to make into wine. It's it's a highly aromatic white, so you can put in really big tanks and you're going to get the best. That's kind of how you get the best out of uh, out of Viognier, is to put it in tanks and do a really long cold fermentation that's computer controlled. And um, so Viognier is just not going to be there every year because mm. there's a lot of spring frost and so there's going to be a lot of times where it's not going to be there for you. And on those same years, Roussan's going to be there. So... Um, we just did our first uh, Roussan Marsan Viognier blend. So I think Viognier is a perfect candidate for blending because it's the opposite of Roussan and it's it's high in aromatic and low in texture. Yeah. And so if you put it with Roussan, which is high in texture, low in aromatics, you can kind of complement one to the other. So I think there's going to be a lot of blending with Roussan that's going to happen um, as wineries are discovering exactly how to use it. And Marsan too, I mean, and we should say that you get these grape varieties kind of separately and then you blend them afterwards, or do you do field blends? No, we didn't do field blend. Like Viognier comes in way, way early right. in the season. Roussan comes way, way late in the season. So I don't think, I don't think there's a chance that we'll ever get them ripe at the same time. We also make Syrah and I'd love to put a little Viognier in the Syrah, but they just come at to two totally different timing. And right, so right. we just, we've never had the chance to, uh, to try, to try field blending the two. Yeah. Um, but yeah, there's going to be. So Marsan is kind of uncommon at this point. Um, so there's a lot of Viognier. It's probably the most planted white wine grape in the state. Um, they're starting to be quite a bit of Roussan. And I believe that every winery that wanted Roussan this year got it, but us, we got held out. <laughs> and um, um, Marsan is kind of rare. So, it's But that's, the that's one of the traditional blending grapes with, uh, you know, in the Rhone Valley. Yeah, and it, it grows well, too. Um, we don't have definitive answers on how early or late of a butter break it is compared to the others because there's not that many vineyards to it. So there's not that many situations where we're side by side with like Viognier, Roussan, and Marsan right. where we can know exactly what, what type of butt break to expect and when to pick. And so there's a little bit more work to be done with Marsan to figure out exactly how much we should have in the vineyard and whether it should be a blender or a Verano wine and Roussan. I mean, you can make, you can make different styles of Roussan. Like we make high alcohol, like kind of bigger style of Roussan than most, most wineries in Texas. And then you have like wineries like McPherson that, that make that lighter, just crisp. And it makes for a beautiful wine too. I mean, it's great. It's a great wine that's totally different purpose than, right, than it, ours. And so Roussan is pretty versatile yeah. in that sense. And, and there's everything in between. Then sure. you, can, you can do all the stuff in between too. But uh, those are probably the two extreme examples where all the way to one side of the spectrum and, and they are to the opposite side. Yeah, We should mention also, so you found some Chenin Blanc that had a, that a little, had a little botrytis forming on it, like the traditional areas of the Loire or Sauterne. Um, is, has that happened again or was that a fortuitous accident? Uh, you're making it, or at least you have a dessert wine uh, so, around now. Yeah. Yeah. We, we have it in the bottle. Um, it was, it was a highly technical project, uh, to run it was in 2015 it just it just happened it was pointed out to me by another winery owner and they wanted me to uh, go and take a look at it and it was clean botrytis i mean and when i say botrytis i mean botrytis in area the, the good kind right. of rot and uh it's we never have the conditions for botrytis to retake a hold in texas in 15 we had a wet period followed by dry period with temperatures below 92 degrees and that's that's what botrytis needs and we didn't actually reach like 95 degrees until the second week in September. Wow. So we had full-fledged botrytis where it, it looks like so turned, like where you have the whole clusters with, with pure botrytis in area on it. 
And so we uh, we fermented it. It was really hard to ferment. Then once it started fermenting, you don't want to stop. And you want that <laughs> wine with residual sugar. It's one of the few things where we actually set out to keep sugar in it. Sure. And so you, we didn't want, we wanted to replicate what you would find in Loire Valley because it's, a, it's the Verado. And we had we had the same sugar level from what they would call exceptional years in the, in the Loire Valley. Wow. Because Botrytis really, really developed beautifully in that vineyard. And um, um, so we barrel fermented it and barrel aged it. And uh, we, had, we had a hard time getting the fermentation to stop, even in the middle of winter when we put them outside to try to oh, really? help them just decide to just stop. And, and when it finally stopped, it actually ended up being like, like the perfect numbers we were looking for right from the get-go. It, it just took much longer to actually stop the fermentation. So we, we ended up finishing fermentation in April of the year after. <laughs> My goodness. And you don't expect that ever to happen again, really. I mean, that was just fortuitous circumstances. I've never seen it. Uh, the other thing that helped is that the, the the vineyard manager was a really close friend of ours. So most people, when they see like any kind of rot, they're going to go just, and spray it. And yeah. they were getting ready to spray. We just we just asked them to keep keep a little bit for us. And yeah. so um, it it totally worked out. Like it's cool. You, you could have lost. So the other thing is that it grows year to year. So you overwinter the spores. So um, it's actually a risk to be trying to keep botrytis in the vineyard one year because that means you're going to be battling botrytis the next year. Uh, However, botrytis is not that big of a concern in Texas um, right. because we just we just get hot enough that there's not that much chance of botrytis getting a hold in the vineyard year to year. Yeah. Um, well, let's let's talk about the the reds. Um, we mentioned the Bordeaux varieties, but you've mentioned Syrah and Tanat. What 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 was your um, your your thought behind including Tanat? Was it is it? Do you think that it's a a good grape for Texas? Obviously, I think it's the best red wine grape we're gonna have. Cool. Um, when I plant the estate here, we're gonna plant Tanat only. So um, I believe that uh, in the future, this will be the grape that Texas is gonna be known for. Um, when we talk about acidification earlier, um, Tanat is the one grape that, um, unless you pick it really, really late, you're never going to have to acidify. And uh, that's that's one of the things it's known for. The other thing it's known for is for making really gigantic wines. Right, yeah. And then a lot of wines in Texas, specifically if you're growing in central Texas, where your temperatures are going to reach in the upper 90s and lower 100s, um, you're going to tend to uh, destroy some of the color and some of the tannins. Well, Tanat has excessive amounts of tannin. That's why it's called Tanat. Right. Yeah. And um, excessive amounts of color. So even if you are to lose a little bit, you're still going to end up with with a really, really big wine. Yeah. So it's going to be big. It's going to be dark. It's going to be extremely concentrated. Now, it's a very manly wine, um, <laughs> just like the flavor profile Tanat. I always describe as being Cabernet Sauvignon steroids. It's bigger, bolder, darker, um, and even more age-worthy. Um, then then caps off so those are wines that evolve just a very very slow pace for different reasons like one of them being that they're high acids right. and they retain acidity in conditions that no other grape could retain acidity we didn't acidify our tanat this year when when uh, Remarkable. everything everything was like drying out in the vineyard and perspirating acid and we we had to pick a lot of grapes because because otherwise it was going to be nothing nothing left in two or three days in the heat wave and tanat just chugs along so i think i think when it's all said and done uh 20 years down the road we'll see we'll see a lot of tanat at least in central texas if not on the high plains very cool what about um and so you do syrah do you do a rhone blend a, a syrah uh, or do you just kind of blend whatever you 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 think works 
So for for the most part, I mean, most of our production is bought over at all. So so Capsav and Molo and Pachuverdo are the the three bigger portions of our. So we do a lot of vineyard designated Capsavs. We we make Molo, make one Molo a year. We do Bordeaux blends, and then you do single barrel stuff too, where yes. you just have like this fantastic barrel, and then just gets bottled on its own. Yes. Cool. So our Syrah project is from Newsome Vineyard. It's it's uh, um, it's really low yielding. So usually we just we just do an allocation release of Syrah. Uh, we we had our highest yield ever on Syrah this year, um, which is great because it's it's beautiful fruit. Just it has never it's never yielded much in the vineyard until now. Um, we we have a choice this year for the first time okay. we can actually make our uh, location release that we could actually do a full size release of actually releasing it to the public and putting on the menu for a few months um we could actually blend it and then we're introducing this year a new blend called gravitas um that's the one the one blend that we make that is not vineyard designated so it's designed as being the best barrels that we have in the winery that will blend well together but we have a definitive bias on that wine toward bigger, darker, higher alcohol wine. So it's designed at that really modern blend. Right. right. And so uh, Syrah tend to fit in there. So that would be that would be a candidate for blending. Well, in the past, we Maybe just never had Maybe a little as well? Or and Tanat too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> all, all the Tanat is our lowest alcohol wine this year um, wow. at 14.7. Everything's been higher than that. We're probably going to have our first. Well, for, we're going to have our first 16% alcohol wine, but we may actually end up with one fermentation at 17% alcohol. So um, we, we're, we're making really big, 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 big wines. And that's a reflection of the year. It right. just kind of got hot and, and uh, just put, put a serious amount of stress on the vineyard. And we picked everything in 13 days. So we were, we were on point as far as picking goes. But Did that not, cause you problems, kind of everything coming in at once? I mean, or did you're small enough to handle it? Or, I mean, is that the, the philosophy behind staying small? I mean, we're, we're, we're staying small for different reasons. I believe in paying attention to details. Um, I believe in keeping my wine in gravity flow. And if I wanted to make twice as much wine, I would have to, like, do it different way. Like, pumps are really great at running a lot of fruit through your winery yeah. um, at, at our size by doing all gravity it just slows down our day so we have a lot of long days 18 plus hours but um, it's it's something has been that's been working for us for long enough that we're that we're, uh, that we're committed to it at this point yeah and and we should also say that you know you do sell um, almost all of your wine through the winery for folks who come and, and see your place and hear the story that that storytelling is important for you right so 100 percent direct to the public um there's basically three three of us and that's it and um, everybody gets to make the wine and so when i say three we also have an intern every year <laughs> so so there's four of us during crush season three of us the rest of the year so we're we're uh we're tiny winery sell everything direct to the public we don't sell outside of the winery at the moment. We're not running a wine club. Uh, we'll probably end up having some form of wine club somewhere in the future. The only thing that we have at the moment is on location list for the really rare wines that we make, like the one barrel of Syrah, one barrel Cabbie are in there. And like, so you have a, a group of customers who they are, they, they, they know to, you know, be on the list and they want to get the first notice that something is available. 
Yes. Yeah. So they get cool. they get first shot on all the rare all the rare wines. I mean, they get first shot on everything, but right, it's, sure. It's uh, it's it's a it's a good way for us to reward our best customers and, with those rare wines. And you um and you even bake the bread most days to for the for the tasting room. Is that true? Yes. <laughs> Just not during harvest. Not during harvest. We had we had, we had a lot of customers disappointed because they read all the reviews online about the bread. Oh and, no. <laughs> and so during harvest, we're working really long hours. There's no there's no day offs during harvest and, and yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Um, well, in in, a, in the last few minutes, can can we talk uh, briefly about your your rum thing? How how did you like? Where did that come from? Well, rum is one of the biggest spirits in France. Um, all the French islands are big rum producers. Um, I always had it in the back of my mind, and and um, uh, me and one of my friend from my time in Dallas uh, were looking at uh, opening that distillery, and we just we just found the right property um, right as the wine was growing. So it might have not have been the perfect timing, but <laughs> um, we uh, so we launched that uh, about eight months ago. Uh, we're gonna do every kind of rum. Uh, we have a white we have a silver released we have some stuff in barrels so just like my winery the whole distillery is going to be running on french oak and um so we have some port we have two different kinds of port barrels that are filled out there um so red port and a white port which is something that we're working on in the winery and um um so we're gonna we're gonna do a bunch of like just like in the winery it's just smaller smaller releases of really craft products it's all fermented on site it's all like truly done on site distilled on site fermented on site and and does the winery support that in any sort of way i mean they're separate companies different name it's, it's the name of the distillery is high rum high rum and i love the name and uh and so are they're, they're totally separate entities but they must you know your winemaking must help that out to a certain Well, there's a extent. lot of synergies. I mean, we're using we're using tanks and and, and barrels, barrels, and, and so we're able to like upcycle all the barrels that we're retiring. We retire our barrels really early in the winery. So in the past, we've sold them to other wineries, but now they're all custom made with my name on it. So other wineries don't want that in their cellars. So now we are able to retire them into the distillery. We sell a few to uh, uh, breweries too, but for the most part, now they're gonna go in the distillery. Yeah. And uh, so there's a lot of synergy between between one and the other. Um, there's some legal issues with us actually doing stuff for the distillery, so we're, we can't really like we can't even use our tanks out here in order to ferment the rum. It, it has to happen on the property out uh, there. So we we can't like we can't use all the synergies that right, that, that, we, that, you, that we could that we could think <laughs> or of. Maybe they happen at night or something. Yeah. Just, <laughs> as far as I know, they don't happen. They don't happen. Right. Right. Um, well, um, Ben Kelly, thank you so much. Any, any final thoughts for, 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 um, anything we didn't cover that, that, um, you know, that, that is itching or any messages you want to get out? Um, this, this was probably the most consistently beautiful harvest in Texas. So it's, it's really great. There's, there's a, I know you were a, another winery before this, and there's, there's a bunch of new people that are coming into the field that are doing things in a slightly different way with slightly different varietals or different approaches. And I think, I think the more people are making wine from hundred percent Texas grapes and the more, the more people are going to know about people making wine in Texas. Right. So I think, I think that's the next reach that, that, uh, that Texas wine needs to have is to, is to get to get people to recognize that Texas is a serious winemaking state. And when you go outside of Texas at the moment, there's not that much recognition or acknowledgement right. of it. So every time I go to France or California, I try to bring cases of wine with me so we can 
we can show other people um, the rest of the wine world what we actually do and there's there's a lot of really interesting things that are being done in Texas yeah I, I love it and I'll keep on uh, trying to to talk about those things that people do so Ben thank you so much and we'll, we'll stay in touch sounds good thank you thanks for having me